You sound like one of the old farts in our industry. You know? Oh, God. But, no, I, <laughs> but let me, I'll finish the question. Campaign magazine is biased to <laughs> the historic structures. And, you know, they get their stories and they have their relationships with the historic structures. Therefore, they're sort of biased to writing about creativity in the old days and Don Draper and Mad Men and not about the new equivalents. Be my guest. Be King Canute. Sit in your throne. Let the waves lap around your feet. Hi guys, and welcome to another Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. As you might have guessed with these podcasts, I like to take the odd risk with my guests. I like to stretch beyond the realms of the B-Sci academics and veer into business, sport, perhaps politics. Because why I think this pod is a little different in the genre is that it's striving to get to the heart of human motivation. Why do we do the things that we do? And we can learn that in theory, of course, but we can also learn it from true practitioners. So today I'm talking with one of the titans of global capitalism over the last 40 years, and that's Sir Martin Sorrell, who made his name building the WPP advertising empire before departing acrimoniously five years ago, only to start his next venture, S4 Capital, barely having slid off the treadmill. Now 77, he shows no signs of slowing down. We talk about what he loves about his work, power and relevance, self-doubt, and ending his Newsday diet by going to bed with Emily Maitlis. Well, if only. Martin is a polished tough nut to crack, but stick around and you'll get some very personal family anecdotes which go some way to explain the man. And by the way, if you want some amazing rewards to fire up your brain, like signed Rory Sutherland books, Huck's nutrition and hydration powders, and great discounts to online education platform 42 Courses, where, by the way, you can study BS with the likes of Rory, Bree Williams, Patrick Fagan, and Dan Bennett, go to aloadofbs.substack.com, click on this episode with Martin, and grab your unique link to refer a friend or two to the show. It's very easy. My advert's over. Now for the real deal. So, Martin, welcome to A Load of BS. I'm really delighted to chat with you today. Good. I'm having my breakfast, Daniel, at the same time as talking a lot of BS, as I always do. Well, that is absolutely fine with me. Continue to enjoy your porridge and banana and coffee. <laughs> now, as the FTSE 100's longest-serving CEO by some distance while at WPP, which is the advertising giant, of course, Martin created, he became one of the most well-known and well-regarded operators and deal-makers in the world, expanding WPP, I think, to about 3,000 offices, 113 countries at its peak. And I suspect those numbers may be a little down since he departed. But the multi-agency model which Martin built is arguably no longer fit for purpose. And that sits behind his motivation to reset the word of the moment, if you happen to follow British politics and or English test cricket. And he founded S4 Capital in 2018, which is a pure digital venture with a unitary structure, which means, in other words, a single entity, which focuses on content, data, digital media, technology services. I'm sure we'll come to what that means a little later. But what I'm keen to talk about with you, Martin, today is less the stories on the surface, less the chronology of big deals done, but more the art behind yeah. them, the psychological context and 
technique at play. And I want to talk about your motivations, what influences you, how you influence others, form alliances of which you've made plenty. I used to think, Daniel, that you think there's art behind it. I mean, it might be a bit mixture of art and science. I art, guess. science, luck, timing. Those are really important things, much more important yeah. than art and science. I, think. Yeah. I hope you're appreciating my extended introduction, which is giving you the chance to polish off the final mouthfuls, but I'm just going to complete that <laughs> uh, now, only to say that since, of course, Martin is at the bleeding edge of digital advertising, we'll also discuss what that really means beyond the jargon and whether we're getting distracted and seduced by false measures. But let me just start by asking you, Martin, what do you love about what you do? I think it goes back to what my dad said to me many, many years ago. He said, find an industry that you enjoy, find a company inside that industry that you enjoy, and then build a career there, build a reputation there. He didn't mean a reputation that Daniel would ask you on a BS podcast or whatever, but be admired, respected, or whatever it is in the course of building that business. And then he said, actually, if you want to go off and start something on your own, do that. He had never done that. He worked for somebody else. I mean, he treated the business, which I think was one of his strongest assets, certainly for the people who employed him. But that was his advice. So in the answer to your question, is it really fulfilling that? You know, the industry is enjoyable. It was rather, I always likened advertising and marketing to the sports and entertainment industry. They're very low barriers to entry. You are only as good as your last ad or your last piece of work or what you did. So no real barriers. And you could enter and if you had talent or you had ability or luck or timing, as you mentioned before, you made the most of it. So I think the answer to the question is in doing what I enjoy. I wouldn't do it unless I enjoyed it. I do think, you know, I'm 77 or was on Monday. And I think it is important when you get to those lofty heights of age that you continue to exercise your brain Uh, from a physical and mental point of view I think it's really important I've seen people who quotes unquote retired and they tend to vegetate so I think really keeping active both mentally and physically is really important you know I always remember the first day I joined Saatchi there was a guy who retired on a Friday afternoon I joined on the Thursday as CFO and on the Friday I said goodbye to him and on Monday morning called him and said I'm back because he was so fed up with the weekend at home. So I think the answer to your question is I'm doing what my dad said, and it's an enjoyable industry. The company that we're building, S4, is enjoyable, as was WPP and Sarches, which were my two other iterations. So talking of keeping active um, and S4, when you get up in the morning, what's first on your mind typically? Well, I look at the incoming. I sort of have my iPhone next to me. And I flip through all the stuff. I turn on Squawkbox or CNBC as I'm doing my ablutions. A horrible thought, but I'm doing my ablutions. Uh, So I basically get everything done when I wake up, um, start to listen to what's happening. And then often I have a breakfast meeting at around 8 o'clock. And they start from then, rarely now lunches out, a few lunches out, a few dinners out. But basically sort of three or four meetings in them morning Zooms or in person, uh, three or four in the afternoon. And then, of course, if I'm traveling, it's not dissimilar if I'm traveling. I probably if I'm traveling, if I'm in America, my sleep patterns get disturbed. I was in Washington last week and going to bed at about nine o'clock. Well, the Americans tend to eat early. And the dinner we had around the business council was early, around six o'clock in the evening, and we got back to bed at nine. So I woke up at three when it's market open in London, if you like. Oh, God. Yeah. But in the same pattern, you know, I tend to watch squat box, read the FT and the Wall Street Journal, then go to bed at night with Emily Maitlis, if I can put it like that, you know, on Newsnight or the news or Squawk Box. If I'm in America, 
not dissimilar. It's sort of Joe Kiernan, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Becky Quick in the morning. And in the evening, I mean, there used to be Charlie Rose, of course, but not so much of that anymore. But similar patterns. So it's really TV plus the newspapers online, having absorbed all my email. So in the spirit of nonstop, then at the age of 73, back in 2018, having created, built and run WPP over 33 years, was it the bitter taste and frustration of that departure which drove you to start something new so quickly? Or what was still exciting you at that point about building business? I think there were a number of sort of strands to it. One, as I said before, I didn't want to do a sort of portfolio of stuff. You know, I've done some non-executive directorships over the years, and some of them were very time-consuming, and some of them absorbing, but time-consuming. And, you know, I don't like to be deflected from my sort of main focus. I mean, I have a lot of stuff that I do around S4 or WPP or indeed Saatchi's, but, you know, I don't like to get deflected from the main thing. But, you know, I didn't want to do portfolio. I didn't want to retire. I didn't want to play golf, old man's game. And I sort of looked at some of the PE companies. Uh, that was interesting. I mean, the private sector has a lot of advantages, but we managed to create inside S4 really a private equity structure, which is unusual. And therefore, so in a way, S4 is almost a private equity structure inside a listed vehicle. And I really wanted to focus on something. So that was sort of the part of it. The other part of it was that, you know, obviously I was disappointed by what happened at WPP at this point. You know, if anyone was asking me for any advice, choose your chairman carefully, I would probably is the answer. But, you know, I think really a point to prove, I said this before, I had a point to prove. And that, that point to prove was in the digital world. That was a second element of it because I was criticized in 2017, you know, when growth slowed that we hadn't moved WPP fast enough, which I think was legitimate criticism. But, you know, they're still struggling to, as the, all the holding companies are, are struggling to embrace the digital world. And what drags them down is the analog albatross that, that's around their neck. So that was, you know, sort of a second part of it. And then the third part of it was I wanted to focus on growth. 2017 was a tough year. I was looking at some economics articles actually on what happened post the great financial crisis. And, you know, population growth slowed, GDP growth slowed partially as a result of that. Productivity was not as strong. So, you know, we saw that in 2017. And I thought, you know, I'm 73, I'm too old to focus on, you know, struggles. So why don't we just go where the growth is? So use the Gretzky analogy of going to where the puck is going to be, not where it is now. So I wanted to focus on growth. So, you know, as you pointed out in your intro, our mission is to create the new model and disrupt the old. So there's something Amazonian and Teslan about what we're doing. And then the secondary part of it, there were four principles, digital only, because that's where the growth is. I and mean, digital is growing at 15 or 20% a year. So if you're in the right place, you'll grow at 15 to 20%. If you do better than the market, you know, last year we grew in the first nine months. We haven't really started full year figures yet by 46%, 47% organic. Forget about deals, you know, which we doubled our size if you included deals. So really focusing on growth, well, that was number one. It's number two, it was a data-driven model, which the data creates or inspires or drives the creation of content personalization at scale, which is what we did. 
through digital media in a continuous loop. So it's like an election model, but without an election date. I always make that analogy. And thirdly, we go to market as faster, better, cheaper, faster about agility, better is understanding digital ecosystem, and cheaper is about efficiency. And then finally, as you pointed out in your introduction, is a unitary structure. So one PL, we go to market as one brand with Media Monks, Media.Monks. It's got a lot of flexibility in it so that people, you know, they can call themselves fashion and luxury, flux.monks, and they can call themselves Media.Monks, they can call themselves data and analytics. It's not monks. So there's a, but we're all monks, basically. There are about 8,200 of us in 33 countries already in three years. And we're growing our number of people by about a third organically by a third a year. So, you know, it's a strong growth business with a unitary structure, which is very different to the vertical structures that you find in the whole country. So that, you know, it's a long answer to your question because it was multifaceted. It was, you know, I didn't want to retire. It was because of what happened at WPP. It was because I wanted to focus on growth. Despite that it's clear to you now that the WPP model is perhaps no longer fit for purpose, I was wondering in your final years at WPP as CEO and as digital media and all its platforms and manifestations was growing in influence, were you starting to think then about reshaping the business radical? Were you even considering starting something afresh? Or perhaps you could take a view as a post-rationalization that actually your departure was actually a blessing in disguise. You could say that. You know, I had, from a personal point of view, you know, I had about a 2% stake in WPP. I started with 16% and it got diluted down. At S4, I have 10% of the company now. That's been diluted. I started off with 80, but I also have a carry in the company as well. So effectively, you know, I have a greater interest in the company. So you could argue two levels. One, from a professional point of view, it enabled me to focus totally on growth, which is what I wanted to do, and not be held back by the trappings or what I described as the analog albatross. And the other part of it is I could really focus on where the growth is coming from. And then from a financial point of view, probably, you know, as people have observed, the value of my stake in S4, potentially the carry and everything else will be significantly greater. So probably on all counts, the answer to that was, you know, you're probably right. Having said that, I still think, you know, WPP has not changed very much from what it was. I mean, they talk about simplifying it, but all they've done is make the verticals stronger and therefore the barrier barons and the baronets or whatever they call a female baron. The barons and the baronets are all fighting against one another and creating the same services within their brands. You know, so the model is counterproductive. It's counterproductive at two levels. One is externally and one is intern. So I think three years out, I still think the best thing would be to break up. It sort of reminds me a little bit of GE. I used to hate the word conglomerate being applied to WPP because I thought we were a relatively focused group of advertising and marketing services businesses and not like a conglomerate like an IT&T, the Hal Janine when I was at business school in a bunker 24-7, literally not knowing whether it was day or night, looking at numbers in various industries. You know, I didn't think we were like that. I thought we were much more focused. But you know, that model is no longer fit for purpose. It's competitive internally. That might have worked when you had to separate forward and GM or Procter and Unilever, that is less of an issue now as the compensation of the agencies has been reduced. So times have changed, and I think this model is a better model. And from a personal point of view, you know, three and a half years out or whatever it is, it has its advantages. Let me ask you a different question. So, Martin, does it matter to you to be relevant and at the center of the action? Is the power, influence, and voice that you have on the global stage, is it very intoxicating and addictive? 
I don't know about that intoxicating. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know why it is. My mother thought it was the worst thing I could have ever done. But when I went to business school, you know, Cambridge gave me a sort of a narrow view on the world. I think Harvard HBS gave me a much broader. I mean, the irony of that is in my class was the son of the president of Procter & Gamble, Jim Morgans, and his father was Howard Morgans. I think he was CEO of Procter. And Procter was regarded as being a global company, yet only 10% of its revenues in 1968 or whenever it was came from outside the US. But Harvard certainly gave me you know, its skill, if it has any skills, which it does in my view, a lot of them, is encouraging understanding general management and understanding the world and thinking about things a little bit more globally. Now, when I went to Sarches, we alighted on the global theories, Ted Levitt's October 1983 Harvard Business School Review article where he said, you know, globalization is everything that the consumers will consume everything in the same way everywhere. I mean, he, he overrated it to make the point. As we discovered 20 years later when we did a reprise of the article at HBS with John Quelch, who was on the board of WPP and professor of marketing at Harvard Business School. And Ted was there, sadly, before he died of cancer. And he did make the point that he overegged it to make the point. But, you know, globalization, so it was useful in that context. And what Sarches was about was about globalization, capitalizing on the growth of free trade post-World War II, the expansion of the economy, productivity increases, population increases, and the dissemination of taste globally. That was one thing. And then the second thing was the growth of technology, which at WPP, we continued the global theme. And then we embraced the growth of technology. Some would argue not fast enough, but we were there in the early 90s. You know, we were being quoted quite extensively and actually it was in the Harvard Business Review, I think it was in 1997 about what we were doing in the area. Interestingly, Omnicom in the late 90s probably had the lead. I mean, it disappeared rapidly, but they did have the lead actually. After the internet bust, they got badly beaten up there, but they did have the lead from the point of view of the agency holding groups in terms of addressing the internet, the technology expansion. But it's those two trends. And of course now S4 is purely about technology and focusing on technology. I mean, we don't develop technology, but we are a services company. We are part of the services layer. You know, I said we go to market the faster, better, cheaper, and the better piece is understanding that digital ecosystem. That's the critical thing. So that's how the thing has morphed over time. It's morphed from globalization through to technology and globalization and then to technology. And I've been interested in that. I don't think it's about what you said, Daniel. I don't think it's about sort of being at the center of things all power or whatever. I think it's just interesting. You know, I've been spending some time in Latin America the last few months in Uruguay and Argentina and Colombia. And, you know, when I hear all this stuff about relocating manufacturing, and it's also because of the supply chain disruption as a result of COVID, but when I hear all this stuff about, oh, let's relocate to the UK or US or whatever it is, and I'm looking at like this morning, you know, 5% inflation, and yesterday the PPI was up 9% in America. I mean, it's totally unrealistic to believe that you're going to be able to relocate manufacturing capability. You might, you know, chip factories in Columbus, Ohio might work. You know, we had Chintel have done just recently. But, you know, manufacturing, no. It has to be done. And you have wonderful people in the countries I mentioned, Latin America, top of my mind. You know, of our 8,200 people, about 3,000 are in Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, and Argentina. And they're fantastic at technology and they're fantastic creatively and we can use those talents not necessarily for local markets but for the prime markets say of the u.s and western europe and asia so i'm interested in that stuff I might come back to the subject of creativity and talent a little later, perhaps as it's specific to the ad industry. 
I mean, you come across Martin as someone with quite high conviction, confidence. I mean, do you ever have self-doubts about what you do? I don't like the use of the word entrepreneur because, you know, entrepreneur means risk taker, which means that you risk your own money, not other people's money. And often people say, when they say they want to be entrepreneurial, they want to take a risk with their own money. And it's funny, actually, because I remember, you know, all the critical stuff around my compensation at WPP. In the early days, you know, I put money in. I insisted on putting money in. I insisted my colleagues did it as well. And I remember the institutions, UK institutions, on the third plan said they don't think that was necessary, which I thought was just wrong. I think you put your money where your mouth is, to put it crudely. And I think entrepreneurs are inherently insecure. I mean, for example, if you said to me, would I have thought when we started this on February the 16th of 2022, we'd have 8,200 people in 33 countries with a market cap of $4 billion or whatever? The answer is probably no. If you'd asked me whether it was a possibility, probably the answer was yes. But we probably... So, you know, you always have insecurities or doubts. But, you know, I think you have to be extremely ambitious in what you do. I think, you know, if you said to me, what's the comparison between S4 and WPP? I mean, they're both extremely interesting and absorbing. Uh, The difference at the moment is scale. You know, where WPP is 14 billion quid of market cap and we're 3 billion, right? So that's the difference. This is only a difference of scale. I mean, you know, I think directionally we're in a far stronger position. But what we now have to do is to prove that we can as we put it, get conversion at scale. You know, we have six whoppers, there's six clients over $20 million a year. We're targeting another 19, and we're making good progress in relation to 20 squared objective, which is 20 whoppers, 20 times 20. Gross revenues last year, or revenues last year, about $900 million. The market's expecting about $1.2 billion this year. So I think the difference, Daniel, is scale. So I wouldn't say tremendous doubts, but entrepreneurs are insecure people. And you need a little insecurity to keep you on the edge of your seat. And I totally agree whether you're talking business or <laughs> politics. Having skin in the game, I think, is absolutely critical. I think it keeps you on the straight and narrow. But I mean, of course, you talk about the relative size of S4 now to WPP. What's interesting about you as an entrepreneur is that it seems to me you don't do boutique. I mean, in four years or so, you've built with colleagues S4 just in terms of number of territories that you're in, yeah. the number of employees. I mean, obviously, there's some private equity going on, and there's an acquisition going on in the background, but you're not interested in doing small things. I mean, so size and scale matter. No, no, I, I like scale. That's going back to educational business school. Business school. I mean, HBS was about scale. So you always, you know, all the case study. I mean, there was stuff, management and new enterprises, small companies, but basically it was about global companies. And I think it's just really interesting. It's not about, you know, in your question, you said, was it about power or is it about being at the center? of things or whatever it is. That's not that. It's it's really interesting to think about how all these forces sort of interact and how things are shifting. You know, I mean, just take one sort of small example of it. You know, we have 500 people in Colombia. Duque, who's the president, who will no longer be president in May, uh, might well be replaced by a left-wing candidate called Petru. But what's interesting about Duque is he had a program or has a program to train 50,000 software engineers in Bogota or in Medellin or Cali or Cartagena. So what you're seeing is, as far as we're concerned, is the development of resources, first-class resources. You know, people sitting in New York or London, you know, get very sort of snooty and snotty about it and say, you know, we know everything from a creative point of view or a technological point of view. Certainly in our industry, they look at everything through their rose-tinted spectacles and they ignore or they deprecate what they see elsewhere. You know, they think they are at the center of the world. I just don't believe that. 
you know, if I go to Argentina to Buenos Aires, the quality of the creative abilities and the quality of the technological is superb. Look at Globat, look at Mercado Libre. They came out of Buenos Aires. And, you know, with all the chaos around the Argentinian economy, not just for a few years, but for decades. And it's quite remarkable how strong these people are. The same thing applies to what you see in China or India or Vietnam or the Philippines or Malaysia or wherever it happens to be. Taking a narrow view is the wrong thing to do. The other thing is, you know, given what's happened with Brexit, we have no choice in the UK. We have to think on a broader scale. The market is no longer Western Europe. It's no longer France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. It is much more than that. It's North and South America. It's Africa and the Middle East, and it's Asia Pacific. So, you know, if the UK is to succeed, which is a big if in my view, if it is to succeed, it will only succeed by us getting off our backsides. And we're not going to win by building manufacturing enterprises. I mean, it might be high value manufacturing enterprises in the UK. We're going to win it by not just the high value manufacturing in the UK, but also yeah. services and expanding abroad. Or not just focusing necessarily on big trade deals in New Zealand or whatever it might be. Or well, Australia. you have to do things on a bit of scale, whether you're trying to become prime minister or not, doesn't it? Exactly, and where your centre of gravity is. Uh, but going back to sort of Harvard and MBAs, I mean, do you think, by the way, that MBA degrees now produce people to lead organisations successfully in 2022? I wonder... Pandemic influence, you know, accelerated by the pandemic, I think conventional education models have changed and the perceived value of expensive courses has shifted. And of course, more content has moved online. There's more choice now. So I wonder whether the MBA brand is losing its halo, but then it, that is fit for purpose as well. It's really difficult to say. I mean, I have a vested interest because I went through it and therefore I would tend to value it more highly. I think not everybody, that's not the case with everybody, but I think generally. There have been shifts in the schools. I remember when I was on the Dean's Committee at Harvard, which was from about 96 to 2003, so it's a long time ago. We received a very big gift from an alumnus and building a new building as they were sort of sticking the first spade into the ground for the first time and shoveling in the first sod of earth, uh, the questions were raised as to whether, you know, this was the beginnings of the internet, whether we should be moving online and not building physical facilities. I think it was a great gift. You know, I was young. I was 21. You know, I was part of the most naive class at the Harvard Business School. The dean of admissions, Dean Athos, said this was because of the Vietnamese draft. I mean, a lot of Americans went straight to B school. About a third of the class, I think, it comes straight from school. Our average age was around 24, where there is going in, whereas now it's probably around 26, 27, which I think, by the way, is too high. But, you know, it was unique. I mean, it was wonderful. I'd done my three years at Cambridge. It was my fault that I got as much out of Cambridge as I should have done. But I really got out of my 18 months or two years out of HBS. I really put my heart and soul into it and really tried to do as much. And I got a much broad, it's a trade school. It's not an academic school. And I think I got an awful lot. And to have those two years in a foreign country, in a different environment to think about you know, go back to that question about you know looking at things globally or whatever i think that's what it taught me i mean the number of female students was non-existent and the number of foreigners was very limited but it gave you a very different view and i think everybody should have the ability to do that you're not going to have another opportunity to do that and i think that's one of the problems with the business school education i mean if starting the mba at 26 or 27 i'm on the IESA advisory board and i think the average age you start there in spain is 26 27. I think that's too late. The deal was you do your 
undergraduate, you do two years of experience, you go back, you know, you're at McKinsey or Goldman, you go to B school for two years, you come back to McKinsey or Goldman. That was the original deal. So you'd be about 22 to 24. And then you'd do an AMP or a PMD, a you know, middle management program for three months in your 30s, and then an advanced management program in your 40s or 50s. So there was a continuous education part to it, which are important. I think the answer to your question is there'll be more flexibility. It's a bit like no, work. You know, do I, I think... We're all going to be in the office? No. I mean, I'm 77 and I'm arguing with younger colleagues and indeed family members who are saying, you know, you've got to be in the office. And I don't agree with that. Given the technology, we're on the beginnings of the metaverse and that will have a big impact on this as well. We're on the beginnings of this. So flexibility in the workplace, trusting people to do what they should be doing or you want them to do or whatever remotely. There are other cultural issues. There are the efficiency issues. The bouncing ideas and thoughts of people are always really important. But I think getting a better balance into it. So coming back to the education thing, more remote plus physical. It'll be a more varied program. Let's talk a little about your deal making. I want to ask you, does psychology matter doing deals and acquiring businesses? How important did you find it to understand the mind and behavior of your counterparts? I think doing research, you know, getting, is it really critical? I think a lot of the stuff that gets done, the research that gets done into it, I mean, when I say research, I mean, it's more than research. The thinking behind it is not great. And that's why a lot of deals go wrong. But the answer is, you know, really understanding what's happening, you know, on the other side is critically important. So people always sort of portray me as being sort of tough in negotiations. No, it's not really. I mean, I think it's better to have a positive atmosphere than a confrontational one. So if you sort of look at what's going on politically at the minute and making sort of comparisons to that, go, you know, this is a very antagonistic negotiation <laughs> over Ukraine. You know, I get up this morning and President Biden is saying, you know, we see no signs of them withdrawing. And, you know, if they invade, we're going to slap them with sanctions. I mean, I'm not saying it's necessarily the right or the wrong thing, but I don't think that is the right way to negotiate these things. So I think getting your research intimately, I mean, in most of the big stuff that we did at WPP, you know, whether it be a JWT or an Ogilvy or a Y&R and a Gray, I mean, you know, we used all our sources of information, a lot of desk research, a lot of talking to people, you know, clients, people inside the target, outside the target, analysts, you know, across the whole spectrum. So you can't do enough in terms of trying to understand what's going on. And I think the reason, like, you know, I was looking this morning at Dentsu's results. I mean, Dentsu have gone through the most horrendous ups and downs in relation to deals. And I think yesterday they say, well, you know, the question is, is it a dead cat bounce? I think it's more of a dead cat bounce than a real recovery. But now they're talking about, you know, opening their wallets again and paying, you know, 15 to 20 times EBITDA for businesses. I mean, it's nuts. I mean, apart from being diluted, it's nuts. And the type of people that would sell their businesses to Dentsu at 15 to 20 times EBIT, you know, are going to head for the hills in 10 seconds. So I think my advice, if you know, in a position to give me advice, you know, the research and the thinking around it is absolutely critical. The atmosphere, I think, trying to keep a positive atmosphere, not a an antagonistic one. I mean, you're going to have, you know, you have lawyers. That, I mean, the people who destroy deals are often the advisors, actually. I mean, having 
principal communication is critically important. You know, not letting the lawyers or the accountants or the due diligence people run the process and not let the bureaucracy interfere. So having that principal to principal contact is critically important. Yeah, building those relationships is key. I mean, in the negotiating room, I mean, are you always cool or do you get emotional? I mean, if I think, you know, somebody's being... I was going to say it being unreasonable or difficult. I think the point is wrong. I'll have a go on it. I mean, to indicate that that's something that we can't expect, you know, or we can't accept the red lines or however you want to describe them. You know, for example, in a S4 structure, we do half shares, half cash. You know, we have four basic criteria, one on sales growth, one on margins, one on management ownership, and one on not being susceptible to changes in technology. So we have some criteria that are sort of baked in. And, you know, if somebody says, you know, can I alter the structure? The answer is no. You know, I'll be quite firm on that. Let's talk briefly about influencing and managing that. Of course, you had a very long reign at the top of WPP. You had subordinates all over the world from different types of business and cultures. I mean, how did you keep people on site? How did you build alliances, especially after the hostile takeovers? And how did you use your influence to get people ultimately to do what you wanted them to? It's quite difficult. I think that is, you know, a central issue. I mean, trying to get everybody to face in the same direction at the same point in time is terribly difficult. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why we've gone for the unitary structure inside S4 is, you know, that in theory, at least, should align everybody well nigh perfectly. And the problem with the multi-brand model is it doesn't. I shouldn't say this, but I continue to be appalled by the things that we see going on inside organizations, not just our own, but client organizations and other organizations, which are counterproductive, where people are openly prepared to subvert the purpose of the company. That could be political reasons, geographic reasons, functional reasons. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's very difficult because good people by the nature are difficult. Average people are easy to deal with. To your question, they will do what you want them to do, which is a dangerous thing to say because then average people think that to be good, they have to be difficult. So it defeats the purpose. But, you know, I think it is really, really difficult. And the answer to your question is there is no answer. You say, you know, do you build alliances or whatever it is? You know, you build relationships. But the answer is it's very, very difficult. And it's often a moving feast because people change. What they were prepared to do one year is different to another year or in one location is different to what they do in another location. So the answer is it's very, very difficult. You know, there are very few people who've been able to do that. It's to get everybody, the best way I can put it, facing in the same direction at the same point in time. Yeah, I think it's one of those great organizational challenges about how do you organize your business or businesses so that your employees behave with integrity. And I suppose at WPP, it's a difficult challenge because, of course, you've got this group structure, but then you've got all these different individual companies. I wonder, did you think about the organization and incentives at a group level or did you essentially delegate that to at an individual company level? Well, you get caught between the incentive because people say, well, I can't control the group. So why should I be evaluated on the group? Because you sort of duck the problem by saying, okay, well, we'll give you a proportion of your incentives based on what you can control. My view is that everybody should operate on how the company does as a whole, not how their individual part of it is. But, you know, what inevitably happens is you end up with a situation where half of the, say, short-term incentive, the annual incentive, is based on performance objectives that you can control, and half is, you know, on the basis of how the group as a whole. So you do a compromise. In an ideal world, I would say 100% should be based on how the enterprise operates as a whole. So you try, at least in theory, build a mutual interdependence into it and get people to think about the thing as a whole. 
WPVO, I can remember some years we would have blowout years in Brazil, you know, one way or the other, and people would say, why should I be penalized because Brazil did badly? Or Brazilians would say, well, we've done well this year, you know, why should we be penalized? Because I don't have any magic bullet to that. You build relationships with people and they try and respond or you try and seek their response to what you're trying to do. It's very difficult. But, you know, having got to where I've got to time-wise, my view is it should be based on the whole enterprise. I mean, getting people to think about the company as one is the critical important because the inefficiencies and problems that are created by people fighting with one another internally and doing things, you know, making investment decisions which are counterproductive or counter to what you're trying to do at the center. I mean, it's horrendous. I can imagine. I thought that your point about, you know, brilliant people are often difficult to temperamental is very analogous, of course, with sport where you find that athletes, often the best yeah. ones, have a bit of an edge. And in a sense, you want them to have an edge because having an edge is also sort of what makes them rather brilliant. That is exactly right. You know, you take how did Mike really manage Ian Botham? I mean, Brearley was a psychologist or psychiatrist or whatever he was. And, you know, he wasn't the greatest cricketer or batsman in the world and probably didn't deserve to be in the England side on the basis of his batting. But he had an understanding of people and how to manage people. And I think that's exactly the point, that what you have to do is to try and manage the eccentricities and the egos and whatever, because by definition of done well, they've made the right decisions. And, you know, it's trying to encourage them to make those decisions which get us in the direction in which we want to go. So it's very difficult to manage it. We're tolerant. Exactly. I mean, it's, without digressing too much into cricket, I know we're both fans of it. It's now the, the, also the debate with Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad, which is that they're both great cricketers. They're dominant personalities in the dressing room, and they're sort of arguably being pushed away to let new blood come in. No, no that's a bit, bit different. That's a bit like Tom Brady going to the... Buccaneers, you know, that Belichick, whoever made the, the call, I would guess it would Belichick, the, the call that, you know, Brady has passed his sell-by date and we have to go for a new quarterback. And of course, Brady goes off and he wins the Super Bowl in his first year and he gets to the playoffs in the second year, which wasn't bad at the age of 43 or 44. But that's a different question, Daniel. That's a question about time to move on. So that's a sort of different one. This is about when people are in their prime. I mean, Anderson and Broad are probably still capable of taking three or four wickets and in innings. But you know what I mean? It is about making room. It's a slightly, it's a different point. Let's talk a little about digital again. We've flown over it a little. I do want to have a, a share a few thoughts there. Just as some context. Now, research suggests that most advertising in general goes pretty unnoticed. In fact, I think about 21 billion spent on all forms of advertising and marketing in the UK, 4% remembered positively, 7% remembered negatively, 89% isn't noticed or remembered. Taking that into the context of digital, now digital content, clever use of data, very central to S4's uh, raison d'etre. But despite its growing dominance of media spend and its promise of precision, you know, in a world where impressions on Facebook are counted by the split second uh, view of a pixel, it seems to me that we become obsessed with pixels and precise measurement to the detriment of real communication and imagination. You sound like one of the old farts in our industry. You know? Oh, God. Well, no, I, <laughs> well let me, I'll finish the question, but I'm not kicking digital. I just want to sort of challenge. I think digital is clearly the future. It's just a sort of a sense, of, are we looking at it in the right way? Do you think planners and copywriters are slightly deluded by its real 
impact that their advertising is having. That's not to point away that eyeballs are elsewhere. It's just, are we using the medium in the most effective way? We're obsessed by frequency and targeting an eyeball rather than actual real creativity. That's my point. The simple answer is, you know, you have to do both, but both the creative side and the data side. Like It's an art and a science. It's left brain and right brain. So, you know, you can simply answer the question by saying it's a question of balance between the two. And I think probably we were too arty and not sciencey enough. And you, know, you could argue now we've become too sciencey and we're not arty enough. I mean, it's a question about balancing the two. No, look, those stats that you quoted, probably people didn't realize quite how influenced they were by the advertising, whether it was 4% or whatever it was. But putting that to one side, you know, life has changed. And I think what you're reflecting, you know, it's a bit like you asking me, do I think distance learning is going to replace physical learning? And I'm sort of committed mentally to the two years I did at Soldiers Field in Boston. Therefore, I'm biased. And I think it's exactly the same thing that's going on at the moment. The system is biased. You know, Campaign Magazine is biased to (laughs) the historic structures. And, you know, they get their stories and they have their relationships with the historic structures. Therefore, they're sort of biased to writing about creativity in the old days and Don Draper and Mad Men and not about the new equivalents. It takes time. But, you know, the market, the stats are killer stats, right? So 750 billion marketplace in media last year. Forget about 500 billion in marketing services, 800 billion in trade budgets, and another 400 billion in digital transformation. Just focus on the media bit. 750. Google did 215 of that. Facebook did 115, despite all their problems. They were up from 83 the previous year. And Amazon did 31. That's it. Tells you everything. And Snap this year might do five and a half. Twitter, around the same. Pinterest, less. TikTok, we don't know. There's a figure floating around that they did about 31 billion at ByteDance in ad revenues or 32 billion two years ago. So it's, it's bigger than that. But we don't want TikTok international. People are trying that. That's a breakthrough platform. But you know, the facts are, Daniel, that's where it's going. And of that 750, 60% last year was digital. And in 24, it's going to be 70%. Be my guest. Be King Canute, sit in your throne, let the waves lap around your feet. <laughs> Please, I don't, don't for one moment think that I'm, I'm proposing that we should be focusing all our money on classifieds, you know, the back of the evening. So all I'm nudging at is that there is an obsession, perhaps with efficiency versus effectiveness. I agree. There's a balance in everything. And losing the psychological, emotional side, obviously, is wrong too. You know, you look at the Super Bowl and you can see that. But, you know, the simple fact of the matter is, or a simple question to ask is, you know, a lot of that advertising was around crypto because crypto is looking for a brand reputational breakthrough. The question in anybody's minds would be, you know, were those spots worth, did they build, they do the requisite thing around reputation or around brand building and ultimately around sales? And the answer is, I think, from the data that we're seeing consistently over time, that personalized communication at scale, which does have the creative heart that you're talking about. So it has to be personalized communication, creatively driven, right? That will win. 
It's not going to be about mass communication. It's going to be, you know, how do we communicate with one another? You know, how do we consume media increasingly? And you're talking to a 70, 70-year-old. I buy what you're saying. I think there's a broader sort of societal question about are we living in a world where first more data is considered often the panacea for most customer behavior. So there's a challenge. It's not to decry this. I think there's just a broader challenge, which is to recognize that data tells us some things, but it's also a blunt tool which doesn't understand psychology. And of course, because it's historical, it can't always reliably predict the future. No, no, that's fair. But, you know, the simple truth is that a lot of our clients or potential clients have not morphed into first-party data and using first-party data or, or they haven't managed to consolidate their first-party data so that they talk to one another. I mean, if you said to me, you know, what's one of the three or so critical things that people should focus on, the more granular marketing people should focus on, the more granular one is pulling your first-party data together and using that together with the signals from the platforms, from the six platforms that matter, you know, which are Google, Facebook, and Amazon, Tencent, Alibaba and TikTok. And those six, you know, you can add in obviously Snap and Twitter and Pinterest, et cetera. But those six, the signals from those platforms plus the first party data is critical. Let me ask you a final question before we do some quick sure. fire, just keeping my eye on the clock. And it's a simple one. What makes you happy? If England win the ashes, I suppose. No. Well, don't hold your breath. The honest answer is, you know, you get satisfactions, I guess, in three areas. You get satisfaction from your family. You get satisfactions from what you do socially. And you get satisfactions from what you do in your career. And the balance between those three things varies from individual to individual, varies over time, actually, as well. So it really is in those three areas. So I could answer that question, you know, Sunday lunch with the family was very nice, right? Birthday lunch, right? Grandchildren et al. Celebrating my birthday on Monday was fine when I went to Paris. That was very nice. Getting the numbers for January was very nice, um, you know, from a business point of view. Doing some stuff socially in terms of with our foundation. So you get satisfaction from all, all sorts of different things. So it depends on which area you're thinking. I mean, I'm obviously very driven by what we're doing at S4. So the honest answer to your question is that my mood in the morning when I wake up and look at those emails would tend to be conditioned more by what I see coming in about S4 than anything else, I suppose. Rather than what's on the menu for Sunday lunch following <laughs> week, one way or the other with with with, with or the, the, mor- the morals of the morals of collection at the gallery, yes. Or the morals of collection. Exactly. I mean, it seems to me there, nevertheless, that, you know, building businesses gives you the biggest rush. That's fair. I think that's conditioned by family and, par- you know, my grandparents came here in 1899, we think, from the Ukraine. And, you know, my father worked in retail, you know, like a, as he said, a donkey in the traces for seven days a week. So I used to go off with him on a Sunday to retail store sites and watch him you know, get his numbers in on a Sunday from his sales manager. So it tends to be, you know, and Friday night, Shabbos dinner was, um, sure, we did kiddish, but it was a chance to kibitz or talk about what was going on in business rather than anything else. That's what happens in synagogue, right? I mean, that's what most people like to talk about in the background. But how important is your Judaism to you today? What does it mean to you? I'm a, a best of three day a year Jew. It's a Rosh Hashanah and two days, Rosh Hashanah and one day. Before. And when I was younger, I probably was a little bit more procedural. 
No, but it's important. Probably over the years, I think as you get older, it probably becomes more important to you, actually. You probably become a little bit more lapsed in your middle years, but it becomes a bit more. As you approach the Great Reaper, you become a little bit more religious. Yeah. Your club, of course, is a very well-populated one, of the, whether it's the two- or the three-day club, of which maybe even a lapsing member of that one. But anyway, <laughs> just terrible. you're right. I mean, these things change with age and with children and family, and, and one reflects, yeah. especially one with the passing of one's grandparents, especially in my case. Well, that's a long while ago. Go, you know, one has to then think oneself carefully about what are the traditions that one wants to maintain and perpetuate and so on. One has to actually take responsibility for it. Yeah, I think there's a great pity because a lot of it gets lost. I mean, my mother's cooking, which was all done by memory and not by, so sweet and sour meatballs, which are the culinary sort of uh, peak, the global culinary peak, as far as I'm concerned, are committed to memory, not to some book somewhere. So you lose a lot. Of course. Let's wrap up with some quick fire. So what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? I guess the kindest thing is when somebody thanks you for something that you've done for them. I mean, there was a guy who actually, his boss called me and said he was going to die. He'd been diagnosed with a rare form of cancer and he was going to die in three months. That was 10 years ago. I think the nicest thing is when he said thank you. That's a lovely thing. What's your most powerful memory? I think my father died. Is that something you still think about? Is that he's still very much in your mind and in your life? Yes. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. God, there's nothing at all. I wear a titsis. Do you? Okay. Yes, I've always done that. I sort of fish it out occasionally. People are amazed, but yes, I do. Yeah, and do you do the associated prayers in the morning with it? I don't. I don't, but I wear it literally religiously because it was my father's. Ah, that's lovely. So that's a strong connection. Which book do you gift most regularly? My partner gifts a lot of books. Or name a book that you're enjoying or have recently enjoyed. Uh, Let me just go back to the sort of the gifting book. The book that I refer to most is The Theory of Managerial Capitalism by Robin Maris, which I read at Cambridge Economics. He was a Marxist. Oh, I think he was a Marxist. He was a left-wing economist anyway. Something we haven't covered, actually, which is really important, which is he made the distinction. He thought about the growth of modern capitalism had been marked by the rise of managerial capitalism. In other words, companies that were controlled by managers, not by owners, and the separation of management and ownership. And I think that's absolutely great. You know, I fundamentally believe that the manager-owned model is better than the manager-managed model. Well, that doesn't mean that managers are bad. It means that owner-managers are much better. When you have your money where your mouth is and you get up in the morning with your heart in your mouth. So I would say the book that I always go back to is The Theory of Managerial Capitalism. That Ray Dalio's, I mean, just Ray Dalio's recent book, I, I don't think his literary style will win a literary prize, but the content is superb. So. No, I've read that as well. And I think his message is not necessarily for everyone. It's a particular style of management and organization, but I think it's got a lot to say for it. In terms of certainly the theme of, of skin in the game, putting your neck on the line and kind of full brutal honesty, there's a lot yep. to be said for it. What's your Desert Island music? You go back to, I think it's 2010, I did Desert Island Discs. But my Kirsty Walk did it with me, and um, it's the best thing I've ever done, actually. Oh, really? Um, it's on the iPlayer. My favorite, it was my funny, it's Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan playing in a Paris nightclub before Chet Baker died, and My Funny Valentine, which is wonderful. Oh, lovely. And your birthday is indeed on Valentine's Day. God's biggest mistake, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and lastly, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time, if there is any left? I spend a fair bit of reading the newspapers and magazines. I tend to the odd book here or there. I watch 
a fair bit of Netflix and Amazon Prime selectively. Last thing I saw, what's it called? The Ricardos with Nicole Kidman. And that Mm. was excellent. And the Tinder swindler is to be recommended. <laughs> so, if they have some Netflix recommendations. Amongst, that, amongst other things. Amongst other things. Well, look, so Martin Sorrell, it's been a treat talking with you. It's been fascinating hearing your Good stories, too. not only what happened, but how you did it all. And if the goal on this podcast is explaining why we do the things that we do and then presenting how real people make real decisions in the real world, then from that perspective of building a business empire and remaining at the top year after year, you've taken us behind the scenes and fulfilled my goals for this. So thank you hugely. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. And good luck to your mum at the Morozov. Absolutely. I shall pass on your recommendation. Next time, everyone, I've got a quite amazing person to introduce you to, and that's Bill Browder. If you don't know who Bill is, you should find out. Ex-hedge fund manager, now full-time human rights activist, Bill is Vladimir Putin's most sworn enemy. Putin might even hate Bill more than he does Alexei Navalny. Tune in to find out why, and in the meantime, if you can't wait till then, buy Bill's true crime thrillers about Russian corruption, Red Notice, and now recently published Freezing Order. They are unputdownable. And if you like a load of BS, please leave a review wherever you listen, and I'll be with you again soon.